You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. In the capital city of the United States of America, which in 1796 was the city of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, rioters filled the streets near where the federal government was housed and where most federal officeholders lived. They broke windows and threw stones at the house of the Treasury Secretary, Alexander Hamilton. They called Washington, the president, a horrid blaspheme and burnt his chief negotiator, James J. in effigy. It was not a very happy time for the Washington administration, but one that has been under different circumstances repeated often in American political history. A honeymoon in the president's first term, and anger in the president's second. If Washington's first term as president put the new government on a good footing and expanded the new America's economy in a way that might be comparable to the dot-com boom of the 1990s, it was clear that his second term was not going to be as sunny. After four years as president, George Washington, the hero of the revolution, was still the most popular man in America, a revered citizen. But he was tired. Factions had developed, led by two of his trusted advisors, Alexander Hamilton, a supporter of a strong national government, and Thomas Jefferson, who wanted America to stay agricultural with a very limited federal government. It was not a squabble of minor personality. Although, each would uh, start to resent the other. It was a fundamental disagreement, so fundamental that the parental figure of Washington could not try as he might intervene. Jefferson saw that Hamilton had acquired power and employees as Treasury Secretary. Indeed, he had. It was the largest department of the federal government. And felt that the apparatus that Hamilton was building, taxing poor farmers, was creating a dangerously imperial government. Hamilton felt that keeping America a strong agricultural society would make us a sitting duck for takeover by a foreign power who had the advantage of industrial production that America did not yet have, but needed the capital to create. Each felt fundamentally strong about their position. Neither could compromise or the nation would be ruined. The philosophical ideas of these two giant men and the stubbornness to which they held them unleashed a series of machinations, creation of factions which became political parties, vicious newspaper wars in the capital of Philadelphia between the Hamilton Papers and the Jefferson Papers. President Washington was sickened by it, and he took the fighting personally. He spoke with Jefferson, and asked his Secretary of State to stop attacking his own Secretary of Treasury, Hamilton. He spoke with Hamilton, and asked the same of him. Neither agreed, though they respected Washington. More political attacks continued. Washington then considered not running for a second term. He asked James Madison, still a trusted friend at this point, to write a letter declining the second term. 
Had he used Madison's letter, he might have set a precedent of one term for presidents that might have been tough to break by anyone. After all, the two-term precedent he set lasted for nearly 150 years until Franklin Roosevelt broke it. But an odd thing happened that would make Washington put the letter back in his vest. Maybe it wasn't odd. Maybe it was the way the 18th century master of American political stagecraft, George Washington, actualized it. As soon as word got back to Hamilton and Jefferson that Washington was retiring, both were concerned. No one at this point, we're talking about 1792, four years after the Constitution was implemented, no one felt ready to assume the great office of the presidency after the hero of the revolution had served his four years. And each one, Hamilton and Jefferson, feared the other faction or their surrogate would obtain the powerful office. Washington, at least, was fairly nonpartisan. Jefferson urged Washington to reconsider. Hamilton spoke of the tragedy that it would be to the new nation, a possible threat to its very security, if Washington did not run again for a second term. That was a good argument for the general and the hero of the revolution. Washington agreed with Hamilton's assessment, decided to run again. Thus he set a two-term president, that presidents, as they can do constitutionally, can run for two terms, that holds today, now codified by law with the 23rd Amendment. Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, Jackson, Lincoln, Grant, Cleveland, McKinley, Theodore Roosevelt, Wilson, Coolidge, Franklin Roosevelt, Truman, Eisenhower, Nixon, Johnson, Reagan, Clinton, George W. Bush, 19 individuals, less than half of the presidents, would get the option that Washington had. And while comments are always made among critics of any president, when president seeks a second term, no reasonable charge of usurpation could be made that Constitution and Washington's precedent allows. For Washington, however, term number two would not be as magnanimous as term number one. Partisan bickering gripped the capital. The increasingly bloody revolution in France made the world unstable, and there were unresolved disputes with the country that still dominated the world, Britain. Slowly but surely, as the second term progressed, Washington became less the Democratic king removed from politics and began to lean more towards the Hamilton faction, the faction that, after all, was led by his more trusted advisor and that supported his general philosophy and his politics, the Federalists. Washington would never declare a party. He despised them and was disappointed when he discovered that Alexander Hamilton was part of anonymous letters and factions that attacked Jefferson. He always considered himself and the federal government to be nonpartisan. That's one precedent of Washington's that didn't hold. Only John Adams adopted that philosophy. Other presidents would definitely be in one party or another. Yet in the universe of 1793 to 1796, nonpartisanship was difficult, especially when the Federalist Party was supporting Washington's administration and the Republicans supported less government and a stronger partnership with France, our ally during the Revolutionary War. That caused problems when France declared war on Britain. 
We already had our own tensions with Britain and didn't need to lock arms with France against it. Republicans and Jefferson called for war on France. Washington decided to declare neutrality without using that word. He called for a friendly and impartial America. But support for the French Revolution was wide in early America. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. And many people in America didn't understand why we wouldn't support our revolutionary ally. Fifty Democratic-Republican societies sprouting the tricolor flags of the French Revolution sprang up in our country. Still with America vulnerable to attack, with a small economy and no army or navy to speak of, this was the only option available to our country. And as the French Revolution became more bloody, events would prove Washington right. Then as farmers in Pennsylvania with support from farmers in other rural areas, boycotted the tax on whiskey instituted by Hamilton's Treasury Department and threatened federal tax collectors. Washington, at Hamilton's urging, commanded a 13,000-man army into western Pennsylvania and established federal power. But angered that he had to do this, in his next address to the nation, Washington attacked the Democratic-Republican societies. He felt were causing this rebellion. In effect, it was an attack on the other faction. An error, James Madison would say in a letter to Jefferson. He was the leader of nation. Now he, Washington, is the leader of a party. Then came the Jay Treaty, a treaty with England that was hated by the Jeffersonian Republicans. Washington used his influence to get it through the Senate. And then in a showdown with his former friend James Madison, who now led the House, he won by two votes to get the funds that were needed to execute the Jay Treaty and established over many political dead bodies the right of the President and Senates to approve treaties exclusively. The House has no part in it. In his first term, he was father of the nation. In his second term, he was vilified as a bumbling old grandfather, a captain in his cabin dozing while the ship of state was led into an enemy's port. Newspapers funded by Republicans were more direct, calling him a tyrannical monster. Yet Washington's second term was not a failure. Some of his decisions were good long-term for America, and Hamilton and Jefferson were right that an inferior man in office at that time would have been bad for the nation in the period between uh, 92 and 96. He squeaked through, it seemed, and lost political capital and image. No president since would ever have as much political capital to spend. George Washington won two elections by unanimous electoral colleges, and no opponent. Only James Monroe would get that lucky. Yet his second term was not as good as his first. So it could be said of the current president, a first term with high approval ratings and midterm election success in the post-9-11 era, was exchanged for a second term that featured a failed attempt to privatize Social Security, 
a disaster after the Katrina hurricane, and continued losses and setbacks in the Iraq war conflict, disputes with foreign nations, a bad economy, a financial crash, and a tenuous position in the world stage, added to by the loss of his party of the White House. Theodore Roosevelt experienced something like a perfect first term, a successful negotiation of a major union dispute that would have disrupted the coal industry, the creation of the Panama Canal, progressive reforms, a Food and Drug Act, wildlife preservation, the confounding of Democrats, and the outfoxing of potential Republican rivals. In his second term, he witnessed the 1907 panic and the 1906 San Francisco earthquake, which leveled an American city, the insurance claims of which may have caused the 1907 panic. It certainly wasn't a disaster, and Theodore Roosevelt would go on to see his successor, his party, his nominee, Taft, anointed. But his second term wasn't as good as his first. His cousin would fare no better in the second term. While his first term was, was wildly successful, his attempt to pack the court in his second term with people of his own that would approve his New Deal programs and his attempts to remove opponents in primaries in the 1938 midterms. Combined with a brief 1937 recession, just as recovery seemed to be occurring, made the second term FDR look like a different person from the first term. In fact, had Franklin Roosevelt ended there, had he not run for re-election in 1940, Franklin Roosevelt might have been a more ambiguous president instead of a great one. Woodrow Wilson's first term provided a bonanza of progressive legislation. The president took his cue from Theodore Roosevelt and really led Congress. He also completed the rarely acknowledged success of keeping America out of World War I and elevating America from weak neutral to a strong arbitrator between England and Germany in the onset of war. In his second term, we had to enter the war, take a side, and the post-war period was filled with racial violence, fear of communist terrorism, strikes, and a strong recession. He failed to win Senate approval for the League of Nations, which would debilitate both his presidency and his health. You would not see the nominee of the Democratic Party win election after his own presidency. Dwight Eisenhower ended the Korean War in his first term, created a stronger highway system, and strengthened the NATO alliance. By his second term, America seemed to be losing ground with the Soviet Union. The launch of Sputnik, the loss of Cuba to the communists, as well as the embarrassment over the U-2 spy plane, made for a lethargic second term. Americans looked for a younger president after the old Eisenhower. 1960 was only a question whether Americans would elect the 41-year-old Democrat Kennedy or the 45-year-old Republican Nixon. In the end, the Democrats won. Although separated by another presidency, Grover Cleveland's non-consecutive second term was a disaster. In his first term in the White House, he had balanced the budget, brought the presidency to a position of strength that hadn't seen since Lincoln, using the veto to block legislation from Congress which spent too much money, reestablishing the power of the presidency to some extent. While he lost the re-election narrowly 
Cleveland had won the popular vote and lost only in a narrow battle for New York. He had angered the uh, Tammany Hall there. Many were sad to see him leave the White House. When he got his second chance, the only president in history to do so, disaster struck in the economy, the Panic of 1893, and he was unable to secure a tariff reform bill, which had been the major issue he campaigned on. Perhaps George Mason was right when he, arguing against re-election for the president, it was the very palladium of civil liberty that the green officers of state, and particularly the executive, should have fixed periods, return to the mass from which they were first taken, in order that they may feel and respect those rights and interests which were again to be personally valuable to them. If you are staying in the White House, how could you know or come about average people? You're not even one of them. Why defend property? You live in the executive mansion. This was Mason's point. Roger Sherman and Rufus King, from Connecticut and Massachusetts respectively, both objected to Madison's reasoning. He who has proven himself to be most fit for office ought not to be excluded by the Constitution from holding it. One has to remember at the time of the Constitutional Convention, the overwhelming thought about the executive that everyone knew but no one could discuss publicly because he was in the room is that George Washington would be the nation's, most likely the nation's next president. And so there was probably some hesitation to limit him to only four years when he could serve two more or four more. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Other convention delegates wanted to avoid a lame duck who would have no interest in service if they couldn't run for re-election. The carrot of a second term would provide that incentive. The stick of losing it would provide further incentive. And the fact that a president could be re-elected might be an incentive for seeking the office at all. Alexander Hamilton argued that to not have re-election would deter a man from the undertaking when he foresaw that he might have to quit the scene before he could accomplish the work. Arguments for re-election were bolstered by the presidential term being changed during the convention from six years, meaning that re-election would 
make the president serve for 12 years, down to four years, meaning re-election just gave the president the eight years that they are eligible for now. George Mason's fears, I don't believe, have been realized. Elections are probably the best vehicle for democracy. And despite fame and high office, Americans have unseated presidents when they weren't happy, and generally presidents have been concerned about the welfare of the nation, despite the fact that most of them have sat at a place far above the average. Most of our presidents have been wealthy individuals, or individuals of great accomplishment. The case for re-election in the Constitutional Convention was helped uh, by the fact that the convention had decided to choose the president through the people, through electors, and not by Congress. So that the president would not spend his four years being blackmailed for his re-election by Congress for everything he did. If Hamilton insisted that re-election provided an incentive, some commentators would have wondered if it was the only incentive. We seem to get much more action out of presidents at election time. Nixon announced peace talks right after, right before the 72 election. Clinton ended welfare as we knew it in 1996, uh, right before that year's election, and triangulated Democrats in Congress and the Republican congressional majority in what uh, some saw as blatantly poll-driven politics. Clinton's second was marred by legal problems and impeachment, minor squabbles with Congress, and small military conflicts. Despite a booming economy, which is argued to be an accomplishment, his second term had few policy achievements. Incentive, it would seem, is no longer much of an issue in modern times. The competition between parties is so intense now that a second term is almost a given. It would not do for a party to pick a president who could only retain incumbency for them for a single term. Giving up the executive branch, the veto, and all of those jobs. It would seem to be too much to bear for a party to nominate someone in that position. It was unclear when Republicans nominated John McCain in the recent election whether they were thinking that there would be a term two. But he certainly didn't commit to one term only. Rutherford B. Hayes, who made such a commitment, or James Polk, men who forswore the second terms, seem out of place today. A second term and then placing your chosen successor in the White House going for three or four terms in a row is a way to go. Yet second terms seem almost constitutionally declared to be worse than first terms. Why is it in history that the second term is worse than the first? Why since Jefferson's disaster with an embargo in his second term to Cleveland's panic, Wilson's dropping the League of Nations, Clinton's impeachment, and Bush's social security disaster. Why have second terms, why are they fraught with trouble? A few reasons. One could be the loss of honeymoon. A new president brings in a fresh mandate from the people. As the only one, other than the vice president, to be able to claim election by all the people in the United States and the nation. There's some force of will to that, and a mandate that comes with a new president. Congress gets a bit scared when they see a new president coming. With midterms coming, can they look bad by not cooperating with the person who the entire nation sent there? Reagan got his tax plan through a house controlled by the opposite party this way. By the second term, some of that image is gone. While re-elected, 
As an incumbent, re-election is not so much as a surprise, and Congress senses that. Congress gets confident, attacks start, and cooperation is often withheld. Second factor could just be arithmetic. A second-term midterm almost always brings bad news. Great presidents, FDR, Theodore Roosevelt, Reagan, suffered this fate. An opposition Congress hungry for a new president will not cooperate. Bush and Clinton certainly experienced that lesson. The third is simple probability. In eight years rather than four, you double the chances that some event will occur, an event beyond the president's control. Washington experienced the French Revolution, a former ally turned into a bloody dictatorship that could send ships over to the capital in Philadelphia at any moment. Eisenhower experienced Cuba, Cleveland the Panic of 93. These events limit choices that a president has. So what to do about this? Was George Mason right? Should re-election of presidents be banned? If not for reasons of corruption, then reasons of performance? Will new presidents coming in at all times perform better than re-electing the old one? Or was Hamilton right? And if we had followed Mason's advice, we would get a series of worse first-term presidents, as the presidents would be unmotivated to do much by that prize of four more years. If presidents were limited to one term, would parties be stronger and limit presidential independence? After all, if a president did turn against their party and the party bosses, they'd be out in a couple years anyway. A suggestion by political science expert Larry Sabato is interesting. He suggests a solution to this problem. A four-year term, for the first term, with a two-year, quote, renewal, rather than a full second presidency. This would limit one man to six years, but still give the president a chance to finish pending work that couldn't be accomplished in four years of a first term. The lame duck would be eliminated. It does conform to at least one constitutional mandate, that the president be full of energy and vigor, presumably, those who got a two-year renewal would be active, at least for those two years. Or would it just push the lame duck period back to the last year of the two-year term? Would it also coincide the second-year midterm with a new election so that a president might have an incentive to reform? However, based on political trends, the six-year mark is when people tend to dump the incumbent party in Congress. Maybe we don't want them to get a chance to dump everything, the president and the Congress, every six years. If you figure that presidential election of 2008 started in February 2007, that would mean if a president got renewed in 04, the election would have to start in February 05, two months into this new renewed presidential period, and there would start to be already intrigue about the replacement. The 4 plus 2 may not work, but it is something to consider with the most recent example, that of a George W. Bush presidency, which accomplished little in the last two years, other than, it seems, to set up a, as positive a situation as possible for the next president. With History Beating Up Politics, I'm Bruce Carlson. I want to thank you for listening. The website is myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com, and a reminder that the archives are available uh, for 1999. You can uh, listen to and download all the archives um, 
most of the podcasts that we've recorded on the program going back to 2006, over 40 hours of podcasts. My history can be to beerpolitics.com. You can also make a uh, comment there or post a question. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.